You're listening to a recording from the 2017 Mockingbird Conference held at St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. I get to follow a saint. How great is that? But I want to tell you that, uh, by the way, I did it. I became a fellow of the AIA at 4.35 p.m. yesterday in Orlando, Florida. You know, for most architects, for most architects, this is the pinnacle. This is it. This is the most important thing that ever happens to you. I mean, look at this. I've got brown hair. I've got white hair. I've got skin hair. This is an incredible thing. But the thing that makes this kind of odd and maybe the only reason why I'm here was that I've only been an AIA member for about a dozen years and you're only kind of eligible to be this, this cool robe and this metal. You're only able to have this after 10 years. So it's been kind of a strange ride. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's not that I haven't, you know, uh, oops, listen, wrong, wrong, wrong. Oh, well, they have the wrong one. All right, well, there we are. Um, I, it's, not, it's not that I haven't won awards and done all sorts of things. I basically, in the AIA, I have, but the news flash, the, as Shatner says, the news flash is that you do not have to be, you do not have to be in the AIA to be an architect. Anybody could be an architect. It's a lot like belonging to a church. I mean, the truth is, oh, there it is. You see, there it is in the wrong place. Um, the, the truth is that architecture is an incredibly complicated thing, just like religion. I mean, there are movements, there are styles, and part of that whole style thing is the fact that there's a, there's a language involved and that, there's, that it really is this system. It is an institute. It is a creation. It's part, it's part of the human need to control and to feel that there's an elite and to, and to basically to create the box that we all want to get out of. And the reality is that, you know, I didn't belong for the first 48 years of my life to the AIA, and, and, and this guy took even longer to join the AIA. And the truth is, and really the thing which I would like you to take away from this, is that just like Frank Gehry, just like Frank Gehry, you don't have to believe in religion to know God. You know, for architects, the AIA is organized religion. It's, it's, it's like a church. Only 80,000 of us, of the 200,000 people that have professional architecture degree, only 80,000 of us pay the 400 or or $1,000 a year, depending where you are, to be part of the AIA. And all of us, all the 200,000, love design. We like making things. And, and we, most of us, resist the idea of being lag-bolted into an institution. But now I'm one of the 3,000 leaders of this institution. But anyway, um, but, but, but like the AIA, uh, and like churches, the AIA really is a place of safety. It is a place of the status quo. It creates a standard. But architecture is also a place that is a star system. 
This actually is architect Van Allen, who actually did do the Chrysler building. And it's actually at a Beaux-Arts Ball in the 1930s. And it actually lives with us today. There's Eisenman, there's, Gra there's uh, Graves, there's Guathme, there's, uh, there's another guy from Princeton, Gra um, another guy, Graves, anyway. But the truth is this, architecture is about performance. It's about success. Like Ledoux in the 19th century, who created perfection, and like Corbusier in the 20th century, the idea of actually performing is central to what it is to be an architect. Uh, but it's not for me. The reality is that I've spent my life building things. I also want to be part of a system that allows me to give to join with people to create pro bono projects like these two field houses in Madison that took 10 years to raise the half million dollars to frame up. I also want to work with families to make houses that are them. They're not modern or they're not traditional. They are things in the landscape that embody humanity. I do interiors that are not crafty and they're not slick. But as a Japanese client once said, when I asked him, why would you ever hire a guy from Connecticut to do houses in Japan? He said, well, your work is happy. And I think that says something. I think it says something that is central to architecture. Because the truth is, you don't have to believe in anything. You really don't have to believe in anything to belong to any church. Just like these kids at Incarnation Camp at a chapel I designed, 350 kids fitting within the drip line of a $180 building per square foot, $180 per square foot building, they can be there and not necessarily be an Episcopalian. The problem for me was, before I joined the AA, the stank of any, any host organization, even my own cradle Episcopalian upbringing, had the sense of laws and of elitism and of essentially defining success that I just find found not me. And basically, let's think about it. The institution of church is losing millions of people. People, the nuns, think of any church as just, nah, it's not happening. And the truth of the matter is, that is actually true of architecture. And in fact, my entire career was before I joined the AA, I helped with a bunch of other architects create something called the Congress of Residential Architecture that welcomed everybody, member or not, into the idea that if you design a house, very controversial in architecture, designing a house, uh, because most houses realize that architects design five, less than 5% of all houses. We have a tiny market share, and it's essentially because we are irrelevant to you. Why would you hire an architect? Some elitist dirtbag who wants to tell you what to do and spend your money. Not a good idea. So, but for the last 34 years, I think, something like that, I've written books. I've written many books about houses and people and connecting the profession of architecture 
to the people that can need it most, whether it is houses or pro bono work or anything. The idea that you could have design means something to who you are means something. Now, what's very strange is that that whole split between architecture and reality and architecture and houses and church and faith, those splits are normal because institutions, institutions, and as Paul Zollow, I assume, is somewhere in this crowd, Paul Zollow has said, law always fails. Things don't work because we don't control everything or really anything. Because those things fail, I only spent two years being a member of the AIA in the last 12 where there's been essentially a recession, a building recession. It, it's been a very, very difficult thing. And, but those first two years came at the advent of the 21st century where we had really an incredible building boom, an unprecedented belief that houses were the engine of everything, that American culture really just is, the, is driven by the residential desire to effectively control our destiny in a house. And gee, isn't it really cool that we can build three million houses a year and every house that we pay too much for is worth more and more money and that means that we're worth more and more money. So the idea of the most personal thing in the world, a home and money and debt and value all came together and everything began to float. The values began to float, our expectations began to float. So in the first decade of the 21st century, this building boom was an incredibly powerful thing, so powerful that it actually took the mid-century suburban homes of our parents, many of us here, and they bulldozed them. They bulldozed them to create a new vision of an entire world made, made of McMansions, made of, made of the inflated law and institution that drives us to build anything, allowed us to build these things that we call houses. And during that time, of course, I wrote my sixth book, and because I'm not totally brain dead, I said, well, I want to write a book that says everything has cost, value is not cost, but everything has cost. And if you have that natural, normal human thing to create a nest, to actually make a place for you, to actually believe in something, because fewer people believe in God, but I can believe in my house, you can do it looking at these 20 houses and know exactly what they cost, because I got the cost for every one, and almost for all of them, you can know what the design fee was for the architects, the architects that do 5% of homes in America, the 5% that actually did it. And it was really this wonderful thing saying, it's a boom, things are too expensive, but you can control your life. You can actually do that. Now, institutions fail. So in 2008, this incredible house system, this housing bubble, burst. And because I'm a whore, we took the same book you saw, House and a Budget, took the whole guts out of it, made a paperback, and called it House and a Budget. Meaning that you can actually afford to build a house even if it's a building bust because here are the actual costs involved. And it actually kind of worked. We sold a lot of copies. But during this, that, that eight or ten years after the bust, 
I kept talking about, I really kept talking about the, dis, the misfit, the idea of the institution of architecture and the genuine needs of people were always kind of at odds. They were always not, not supporting each other. So like architecture, churches need to think about the fact that they need to, well, they don't need to, but they should survive. So during that time, two years ago, exactly when I'd been, had 10 years in the AIA enough, when I was 59 years old, my best friend in architecture quietly said to me, a duo, um, uh, would you be a fellow? I said, right, sure. And then another person that I'd known for th longer said to me quietly, would you, would you be a fellow? I said, sure. Well, it turns out that being a fellow is like everything else. It is horrendous. <laughs> it is, and I'm not, uh, no jive here, it's a church. Um, uh, it is, for the AIA, $400. It is a 40, 4 page application for a competition. A competition in front of architects that gather in DC and they judge if you are worth being a fellow. So what I want to go through quickly with you in this crisis of architecture, what I want to go through quickly with you is this application. <laughs> it's 40 pages. It basically says, and I'll sort of, you don't even have to read it, but you can look at it. It's sort of like a, a you know, a, a nice post Episco Disco Zen act. So it, it, it basically says that I am worthy, that I have, I've, won a, I've done stuff. I've actually presented a national paper in 2009 that I actually put together 60 architects to make a book, that I, that I uh, do a lot of writing and reading, and that I also have won a lot of awards, and I've, I've done much, much pro bono work. That includes doing general access mostly for, for churches and for places where very old people are walking into very old buildings. I, I also do stuff for Habitat, which involves people that have no money, that want to have a place to live, all of that for free. And I also, you know, have, have gotten the accolades, and I've also uh, done any number of projects, and I've, I've also written books, many books, and I also work on the internet with a bunch of things, and also this website, Common Edge, is actually a great website, read a lot for that, and it's quite unpleasant and fun. And I also have, I also have my own blog site, which for a know-nothing uh, person to have 100,000 people look at your work is actually pretty cool, and I write about things that are kind of uh, not safe and not interesting and also often not well written. Um, I also write for magazines. I also uh, write for the Hartford Current, also their magazines. I also am the architecture critic for the New Haven Register. And then they said, oh, and by the way, even though we want you to win because you're this, because there are, by the way, I didn't tell you this, there are five objects. So the first object is you're a genius, you're a good architect, love you. Then there's like you're a teacher, that's cool, that's object two. Object three is the something else. Object four is something I don't remember. And I, but I did object number five. Object number five was you are a gift to society. So what you just saw was very modest. We were very modest. You're very. Don't you like the metal, by the way? Don't you like the metal? Um, 
By the way, I haven't taken this off since I got, uh, got in for It's really not that hard to sleep in. It's actually kind of loose. My wife didn't complain. It was good. It was good. But, but then, and this is what killed me, was I put two interns, because I do have a staff, I had put two interns all summer creating 15 5015 of the seminal projects of my career. And I had to get every single client to write me a personal signature that said, you designed this or I was a lying bastard. Sorry, can I say that? Anyway, uh, so, so to run you through this, uh, there, there was my house, there was a lot of church work, there was housing work. The thing on the right is actually the Episcopal Diocese of Connecticut. Uh, there was lots of suburban work where I took uh, classic suburban homes and I called it suburban subversion, where I, instead of tearing them down, I screw with them. And then there were really interesting additions. There, were, there was uh, some uh, interiors. This is a brownstone in, in uh, Brooklyn. We did over three phases in five years. There was a cool house in East Hampton. There was another seaside house and there was an island house, a weird house. Then there was a big house. There was another seaside house. There was even a weirder house. And, and, and then there was a house in, in California that's kind of cool. And then there was some commercial work. So, uh, so I've just had my life pass before me. I, I just have had a near-death experience. It's been a little bit traumatic. But I think it's time, I think it's time for me to get real. Does anybody want some glasses? I mean, I just can't, I just can't go on. Sarah, is Sarah Condon here? I saw her. Sarah, this is your lotion, so thanks. That, that, that you left it at the barn, so thank, thank you for that. And so, I, I, I really want you to know the, the, the bottom line, which was, after that near-death experience, after that horrific registration to the values of the world, called the AIA Fellowship, It really doesn't matter. It really doesn't even matter that I'm an Episcopalian. It really doesn't matter that I'm a member of the AIA. It really doesn't matter that I am a Christian. Because despite of all this failing, I'm five years old, always. And I'm five years old because God is always with me. He never leaves me. I don't want him to be with me, but he never leaves me. <laughs> A real pain that took us, that Jew boy. Anyway. <sighs> Breathe. At, you know, at, at 16, at 16, at 16, I kind of knew I wanted to be an architect. I kind of knew that the reason I wanted to be an architect was I could never be an academician. And I could never be an academician. I could never be like all of you, seminarians and people like that, because I really, ha I really had to have some tangible outcome. I had to actually do something that 
did something. I couldn't, I, I had to have justification. I had to have things that actually change things, like, like college. <laughs> change things. They, they did. They did. But, but in those times where I worshiped football and in those times where I was at college, after 14 years, I did not go to church. I rejected church because for the first 14 years, actually, doesn't have it here, but anyway, first 14 years, I actually went to church every day. I was a cradle Episcopalian. I knew what I was doing. And I understood that that was part of who I was. So at the same time, I also needed, I needed those bona fides. I needed something that said you, you work. So with Liz, my wife, we actually, together, we made a house. And in that house that really was a manifestation, a physical expression of who we were, we allowed the house to change to actually become part of our family. And it crystallized part of every human experience, which is the desire to share emotion and have some bona fide, a tangibility, something that you can relate to, something you can show, this is who I am. And my immersion in church didn't change that. It didn't change that because even though I'm now a member of the Mission Council of the Episcopal Church in Connecticut, the people that run the diocese, God is always with me. Always with me. And that happened simply because I lived a cliche. I lived a meme. I'm a predictably boomer, washed up dude who essentially lived in Mad Men. They were in Ossining. I was in Dobbs Ferry. He went to work in New York. My father went to work on Wall Street. He came home every day on the Hudson Harlem line, and so did my dad. But when my dad came home, my dad would have, for one hour, 13 ounces of VAT 69 scotch every day for one hour. And I knew that because we counted. And that meant was, that measure meant was, that really my childhood was filled with a, with, with a tempest of sounds and words at a volume of anger that I could not understand, with a rage that only happened when it happened, for no good reason. No good reason. So I had no confidence, but I realized the world, the world gave you confidence. I could get good grades. I could make a really cool thesis as an architecture student. I mean, the church can give you confidence. The AIA can give you confidence. But how I felt and how I feel really isn't about confidence. I grew to know that I have no filters, that I have no vanity. <laughs> I have no vanity. <laughs> I have no vanity. And another shockwave, I have no pretense. I am profane. I haven't dropped the F-bomb yet, so, so, so chill. Um, I am profane, and I am, as you've all heard too often now, loud. Uh, essentially, in those 10 years, 
essentially I was somebody who worshipped football. And then my wife decided she wanted to get married. Liz. And she wanted to get married in a church, Grace Church. So we went to Grace Church and Paul F.M. Zoll, not even a reverend, a curate, said, yeah, uh, sure, I'll marry you. And Paul had this very specific sense of sticking with it. He was the one that did it. He was the one that made this happen. And the reason why Paul Zoll made it happen, and the reason why I hope I get it, is that there is no confidence in this world. There is no institution that allows you to rely upon it. Because law, expectation, perfection fails. It's a failure to believe in this world. It's the ultimate way you can betray yourself. So for the last 35 years, the last 35 years, I've actually begun to weasel my way into finding out how church has enriched my life. And here there's a church I designed about 10 years ago. And how church led me to become closer to a place that I was steeped in for the first 14 years so that like a time bomb, how you grew up and what you were layered in is unpeeled by the act and ritual of a church. And for me, that came to a head 15 years ago because at Trinity Church on the Green in New Haven, both of my boys sung in the Trinity Choir of Men and Boys. And of course, it was just another Sunday. And they were, of course, singing hymn 69, Be Thou Still My Strength and Steel, or uh, Strength and Shield, but actually, Guide Me, Thou, O Great Jehovah. And as I was singing it, as I was singing it, I heard these words. And the words are pretty simple. It just said, Lead me, lead me all my journey through. Strong deliverer, strong deliverer. Be thou still my strength and shield. Be thou still my strength and shield. And I was eight again. It was 1963. I was at St. Barnabas Church in the Green. St. Barnabas Church in Irvington. And God is still with me. He's still with me. He is also the font of every blessing. He is also the same guy through his son who really is okay with this miserable offender. Thank you.